welcome to the New Ventures podcast. Our guest for today is Eugene Wang, the founder CEO of Sophie's Bionutrients. Welcome, Eugene. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Sanjoy. You know, let's start by talking about you make protein flour out of microalgae in bioreactors. Now, for our audience, what does that mean? Could you help you know, make sense of those terms by demystifying them? <laughs> I like your first question. You know, that is truly a huge mystery for a lot of people already. You know, just like my father said, uh, when he was asking me what I'm doing right now, he said right away, you lost me in the first uh, two, three words right there, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so I can imagine. So uh, first of all, microalgae, what is microalgae? Microalgae different than macroalgae. I have to explain a little bit. The macroalgae is something like what we see in the supermarket, the seaweed, the kelp, you know, that kind of sea ocean growing vegetable. That's macroalgae. So what is microalgae? Microalgae are the tiny microorganism you have to see under the microscopic. So things like a lot of time you find it in the nutraceutical supplement stores like spirulina, corella, you know, euglena, those are what we call microalgae. So we're growing these microalgae using fermentation tank or what the more uh, fancier professional term is called bioprocessing. So bioprocessing is describing the way to grow any kind of uh, ingredients, pharmaceutical ingredients, nutraceutical ingredients, or even food ingredients in those uh, fermentation tank like uh, metal vessel. That's called bioprocessing. So basically, we're using fermentation tank instead of the open sunshine pond to grow microalgae. And the, the, the purpose of doing this is trying to get alternative protein out of that microalgae. So that basically is what we're doing uh, with our technology at the moment as Sophie's Bionutrients. That helps, but I do have one follow-up question, uh, which is that you know, I think many people understand what you said, macroalgae. And that is really nice that you said it. You gave the example of seaweeds and kelp, and many people understand, you know, there are multiple benefits from climate adaptation, mitigation, they protect costs, and so on and so forth. But what is special about microalgae to produce alternative protein? So the reason why we chose microalgae, well, initially I chose microalgae because of another very different reason. I have to explain a little bit. Before I uh, came to Singapore, I was in California. I was uh, with another startup, with another venture that I started uh, back in 2010. It's called Sophie's Kitchen. We are the world's first 100% plant-based seafood-themed plant-based seafood company, uh, meaning that we're trying to make plant-based food to replace uh, seafood. So as you can understand, 2010, this is like way before Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat got big and famous. So to a lot of people, you know, what is plant-based food is still very much a mystery. You know, the word plant-based were not even created back then. So I have to go all the lands to explain to people why the seafood should not be eaten because the overfishing, because the heavy metal pollution and so on and so forth. But then at the end of the day, people would ask, well, does your uh, plant-based seafood product have identical nutritional value uh, like the real one? 
Well, I got that. You know, people are eating seafood because of its, its healthiness. So that got me thinking. I thought, hey, you know, that's a good point. If you want to try to convince people to make uh to make the switch to to eat less seafood, we got to come up with something healthier. And that's how I got into this microalgae research. But the more we research, the more we find out this doesn't really have to be just a seafood replacement. It could be a lot more. You know, um, if you go on to our website or our LinkedIn uh, page, you will see that we are able to use microalgae protein flour, the protein flour we developed from microalgae to make into a lot of wonderful foods like the milk replacement. You know, we make a wonderful microalgae-based uh, plant-based milk in the lab. And we also make a cheddar cheese block, a cheese spread. We even made a few uh, chicken nuggets and plant-based burger patty. So you can use microalgae protein to do a lot more. And why we think this is really a, a wonderful solution for the world? Well, first and foremost, these microalgae packed a lot of nutrition. A lot of the microalgae that we're studying, we're using right now has all the essential immune assets needed by the human being. That's number one. Number two is that most of the microalgae has a lot of vitamin B. These vitamin Bs are so missing in most of the plant-based protein we're promoting in the world today. You can only get these vitamin Bs from some of the animal protein. So that is why these microalgae protein become so interesting. And on top of that, Growing them is really energy saving and space saving and really sustainable. Let me give you one more uh, example or a few more examples. One is that our protein can be harvested in under three days. Now think about it. Wow, that is really fast. Why? Because think about the cow, the beef. You need about one and a half year, 540 days. Even growing soy, you're talking about two to three months, 60 to 90 days. So because we can harvest our protein, think about that, you know, on a per unit production basis, all the water energy we need on a per unit basis level is very, very little. The other thing that's unique about our technology is the space needed to grow our protein. Because we use bioprocessing, we use fermentation tank, you can imagine just like the beer brewery, you can grow a lot of protein in a very tiny space. We did our calculation. Uh, growing a ton of pure protein from our microalgae requires just that 0.02 hectares of space. Now, growing the same amount of protein from beef, you need about 141 hectares of space. Even growing chicken, you're talking about, if I remember correctly, anywhere between 18 to 20 hectares of space. That is how space-saving our technology can be. And we all know that in Singapore, space is more than just money. And this is the exact reason why we think this technology can be so sustainable, so sustainable in the fact that it's not only for Singapore, it is also for the whole world into the future when we have so many people, say, for example, that by the year 2050. This is wonderful. And you've already talked about things that I wanted to ask you later. You know, you've talked about your protein flour being used in milk. I know you've also used it in buns for a festival. How do you sort of distribute your product? Do you, we talked about manufacturing it, but obviously the other aspect is to get it to customers. Do you use partnerships or who are your customers? Right. So we're B2B business model. 
thanks to the fact that I, I'm actually pretty fed up with the B2C business model. <laughs> thanks to my uh, uh, many years of uh, experiences in California. Quite frankly, the B2C business model doesn't really fit well with our technology in the sense that, you know, we see this technology as a green technology, as a mission-driven technology. So it doesn't really make sense to make the technology available only to ourselves. So think about that. If we can be the B2B business model, and better yet, if we open up the technology for licensing or joint venture, then think about the implication of that, which is pretty much saying that we can then license this type of technology to a big multinational company anywhere in the world. Then, then they can use the technology and set up a production center right by where they produce a lot of industrial food waste to grow and then use that industrial food waste to feed and grow our microalgae. Then by doing so, we get to cut down a lot of uh, carbon footprint in terms of shipping, in terms of uh, drying and further processing. And so that way we can really uh, have the production of our microalgae protein flour right by the market or even inside the market. And we can then produce a really minimally processed, minimally footprinted protein flour that can be enjoyed uh, by a lot of people around the world. Now, our business model is B2B. So that means that our customers are not going to be general public or most of the consumers. Our customers are going to be the food manufacturers who are using protein flour to make their finished products. Our customers can also be the distributors uh, around the world who are selling all kinds of different kinds of uh, food ingredients to the food manufacturers or even the FMB operators, uh, restaurants even. Our business model is planning to go to sell our protein flour also to the nutraceutical companies who are already using a lot of protein flour and selling the protein flour in the top as the nutraceutical finished product to the general public. So our business model is uh, pretty uh, clear and also quite flexible in the sense that we're planning to uh, really broaden the appeal and the reach of our product to this uh, B2B business model. So that basically is our plan in terms of uh, customer engagement and, and the sales strategy. Very clear, very clear. Uh, you know, you have two major challenge funds, right? The livability challenge and the mass challenge Switzerland. What did these uh, wins do for you? How did it help to build your business? Should I say price money or should I say win, you know, actually help us a lot. The first one is definitely the livability challenge. That was really the turning point of this microalgae project. As I just tried to explain to you that this microalgae project originally was just a pet project within Southeast Kitchen, my California B2C business uh, back in the old days. You know, so it was a pet project within that startup. It was not supposed to be a project on a global scale. But then again, uh, coming to Singapore, because everybody was so interested in, in the new uh, food tech ideas. Uh, and, and so that's why we used the livability challenge venue to try to present our technology. And I guess we're lucky enough to be selected as the winner in that event that year, back in 2019. And all of a sudden, this project was elevated to a global stage. And it became so big that that was the pivotal year that we decided that the 
B2C consumer brand unit in California need to be separated with the B2B food tech unit in Singapore. And so that's why we renamed the Singapore unit from Sophie's Kitchen, PTE LTD into Sophie's BioNutrition, PTE LTD, and the two companies uh, were formally separated. And you can see that from that point on, this microalgae protein uh, project or, or technology becomes uh, of its own, having its own identity and spirit and, and so. And from that point on, we keep on developing uh, the technology through the pandemic. And just earlier this year, uh, we were invited to get into the Mass Challenge Switzerland uh, a Sustainable Food uh, Challenge uh, uh, competition. And then there, again, we won the prize. And that, I would say, is the first time this uh, technology, microalgae protein technology, has the opportunity to really get in touch with the very interested customers that we need to talk to in Europe. This is what we found out in the last uh, few months, uh, especially this uh, from earlier this year, is that when you talk about microalgae technology or microalgae protein, interestingly enough, uh, not a lot of people in Asia have any echo or any response to that. I guess it's because the fact that the novelty of it is just too much that a lot of the people in uh, or professional industry people uh, in Asia are still scratching their head trying to figure out what are we exactly doing. And by the same token applies to uh, North American market is that when we talk about alternative protein from microalgae using fermentation method, a lot of people are trying to figure out what exactly we're trying to do. However, things are very different in Europe. And that all thanks to the Mass Challenge Switzerland 2021, you know, we came to the realization that when we talk to a lot of the customers, the future customers here in Europe, when we talk to a lot of corporate partners here in Europe, they seem to understand microalgae technology a lot easier, a lot better than all the other corporate customers, uh, corporate partners that we talk to in Asia or in North America. They sometimes even told us, oh, we studied microalgae 10, 15, or even 20 years ago. I said, wow, you did? That's interesting. And then later, I dig into this issue a little, a little bit deeper. I found out, wow, even European Union back in 2014, just like our Singapore 30 by 30 strategy, they have this mandate to make microalgae a sustainable food source in the future. So Mass Challenge help us open up another door to get closer and get us into production faster thanks to the Mass Challenge being able to introduce us to many of these interesting partners and, and future customers that we can work with here in Europe. So both events are, should I say, the turning points of the corporate development history uh, of Sophie's BioNutrient of this alternative protein from microalgae uh, technology. And both events, without both events, should I say, we wouldn't be where we are today. We wouldn't make the world understand about our technology at all. Great. This is uh, so wonderful listening to you. You know, obviously, most of your time today, I guess, is going into Sophie's Bionutrients. But I wanted to take you back a little bit to 2010, which you mentioned, where you set up Sophie's Kitchen and you make plant-based fish products. It'd be great if you could tell us a little bit about those products and how customers have reacted to them. So 
I was basically using my family's technology to uh, make a lot of these uh, plant-based uh, uh, seafood products. So I was born and grew up in Taiwan. F my family, four-generation Buddhism, uh, three-generation making uh, vegetarian food. So in Taiwan, we have this technology using kangjak or what we call Japanese yam in most of the Western market, you know. So that yam has a very special texture once you make it uh, into foods that pretty much resemble the shellfish, especially shrimp. So what we did in Taiwan, my family, I mean, uh, we used that uh, ingredient and tried to make it into a shrimp re replacement. And that's actually where most of the inspirations of the Surface Kitchen product line came from. Our first product is actually a plant-based shrimp using konjac yam. So once we have the plant-based shrimp, from that point on, we develop a lot of different kinds of interesting products. Say, for example, we developed the scallop, also using konjac to, uh, to simulate the scallop texture. We also developed a, a smoked salmon. Uh, using also the kanja yam to simulate that smoked salmon, kind of chewy, kind of rubbery texture. And also we use the, the, the same kanja yam, we develop calamari, squid rings, you know, so we can even simulate the squid texture. And also uh, using different type of uh, plant-based protein, we develop our fish fillet, fish fingers. We also develop a canned tuna using uh, pea protein. So another thing, which is my personal favorite, I forgot to mention, is uh, our crab cakes. Our crab cakes, uh, the Baltimore, Maryland, American East, East Coast style crab cakes, uh, which can be used as a burger patty, is actually my personal favorite in the Southwest Kitchen line. And it is a wonderful combination of uh, kanja yam to simulate the, the crab meat texture and also the pea protein to give the whole patty a nice amount of a, pro, a protein portion in, in the patty. So that crab cake, in my personal opinion, is the most successful product that we launched in the, in the U.S. And it, it is also my personal favorite uh, uh, in the U.S. market as well. But to sum it up, I think, uh, Sanjoy, you can possibly see a few things in these uh, product uh, development is that what we're trying to do at Salvage Kitchen, we're not trying to make a nutritional replacement or should I say a flavoring replacement out of a, a plant-based ingredient to, to make it a seafood replacement. What we're trying to do is a texture, texture replacement or, or the appearance replacement of the seafood. So that for, especially for the vegans and vegetarians that they can use in their cooking that they have something to go with their pasta or their, their pizza or their salad that makes the whole meal taste or feels more or less like the real seafood experience. So that's what we're trying to do at Sophie's Kitchen back in the old days uh, when I was running it. Well, I did not understand, and maybe it's really interesting to hear that the technology or the recipe, if you may, uh, came from um, you know uh, generations of uh, from your family, but how do you make plant-based products? You know, what's the manufacturing process like? So the plant-based fish product manufacturing process, why is actually not that different than the plant meat product. So it's a lot of meshing, heating, and also combining all different kinds of ingredients to make it happen. 
So let me start from the ingredient level and walk you through on a very high level uh, all the way to the finished product. So we uh, once we get the protein flour from the ingredient supplier, we then extrude it uh, using the hot heat and high pressure to physically change the characteristic of the protein flour into a textured crumble so that once you soak it back with water, it will feel in your mouth pretty much like the meat or fish-like texture, fish meat-like texture. So that's what you have to do as the first step. Now, once you have this texture crumble, you then combine it with other starch, other seasoning, other oil you need, and other type of uh, texture enhancement. Um, say, for example, some fiber may help uh, your texture as well to try to simulate the fish texture you want to simulate. And then to make it even more appealing to uh, the American consumers, we then, as the final step, we then add some breading uh, or coating on the surface of the fish fingers or the fish fillet, and then brown it. Uh, went through a, a quick uh, deep frying process, about 30 seconds. So make the surface look like a golden brown, and that will taste and, and look uh, just like the, the old-fashioned fish plate you would have uh, from any restaurant or, or any uh, frozen meal or any of the home-cooked fish filet you would have at home. So that basically is uh, the process how we made those uh, fish, uh, plant-based uh, fish happening in, in the factory, on the factory floor. Thank you for that. You, you have obviously got a long history of building alternate food companies. So in the next few questions, I'll step back and try and understand from you some of the lessons. The first question that I have is that in these businesses, obviously, there's a basic R&D, right? Would you just help us understand how long does it take to develop products and how much of the basic R&D a company like you have to make, or, you know, for example, industry academia collaborations possible, or industry large, in a startup large company collaborations possible to sort of uh, short circuit that process a little bit. Well, Sanjoy, for that, you know, I think we need to define a little bit. In reality, coming up with a product is actually a very quick, very short process, as you can impossibly imagine, you know. So uh, if you know a bit about food manufacturing, uh, technology. If you know about a bit about food science, you can actually easily come up with any kind of product you want to sell in the lab. That should be no-brainer. That should be very easy to understand. Now, that is actually not perfect because why? You come up with a product randomly in the lab or with your imagination in your kitchen, but is that going to fly in the market? Is that going to be okay with the consumers? You don't know. And so you got to take some tweak and changes and dig into the issue. Maybe you show your prototype product to your circle of influence, your friends, your family, and trying to make it perfect. And that's still not enough. You then take it to the buyers and then ask them, the buyers could be the retail, if you're making B2C business model, you take it to the retail store supermarket buyer. Or if you're B2B business model, you take it to your buyers. In this case, that would be possibly food manufacturers and ask them. Is this product something you would be interested in selling or using? Then they will tell you more feedback. They will say, well, this is great. Or there is something coming short in your product design. And you see this back and forth tweaking and changing, right? So 
any kind of product development is actually a very long, arduous process of trying to get the feedback of your finished product user or end user. You, you have to really come up with a product that people want to use rather than just the product that you think that they will use or you think this is perfect for certain demands or certain type of application. That's just not good enough. Today's world, thanks to technology, I mean, technology, what I'm talking about technology is I'm talking about the internet, the social media, and all the mobile technology that we have in our hand. Thanks to these technology, information goes really fast. And considering the fast pace of the information changes, if your product development process is not considerate enough, meaning that you did not factor in your end user's feedback, your reputation, your bad reputation will go out pretty fast as well. And so that's the reason why I would strongly uh, uh, advise people who are interested in developing new technology or new products like we do to try to leverage whatever you have in your hand, technology I mean, or whatever people, whoever people in your network you can talk to and try to get a feedback to get a sense of what your future consumers, future customers will say about the product that you just designed, you just developed. You know, because quite frankly, a lot of time, your first idea about the product, 90% of it, people will say it's trash or this is not right. That is not right. And then you ended up going back to the drawing board and then change this, fix that. And then only when you get a 80%, 90% perfect product. And in this case, by perfect, I mean not perfect to yourself, but perfect to your future customers. Only if you get 90, 80% of your future customers really say that, hmm, this is something I like. This is something I want to I wanna carry. I want to try to sell. Or this is something I want to use. That is the only time when you can say you finish all your product development processes. And you can imagine this whole process we're talking about minimally, depending on what kind of product you're developing. We're talking about two to three months or it could be even two to three years nowadays. But as long as you put your efforts into the development process, include your future customers in the feedback, I think you're on the right track. Great. I mean, this really solves, at least in my head, a misconception because I always felt that there is some basic R&D required. But what you're saying is, you can get a product out and that the main time that you spend on product development is sort of fine tuning from with the end customer in mind, testing and so on and so forth. So it's more the D part of R&D that is what you should focus on. It is definitely very helpful for me. But then it still leaves the other question that you can develop a product for the customer in mind. And you already referred to the work that you had done in Sophie's Kitchen of getting the texture absolutely right so that it tastes like seafood. But still there is a process of shifting customer attitudes, right? The product has to taste like what the customer is to eat. And you know they have to be convinced about the nutritional value, which is, which is what you talked about. So in a B2C segment, you know, what are the processes to get customer acceptance? Sanjoy, that is a really big, big question to ask. <laughs> I hope you understand. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Shifting consumers' perception, I really have to say, is no easy task. It requires a 
collective thinking, collective action. And also, it requires a lot of, should I say, agreements or consensus among the people you want to try to convince. Let me give you one example. So when I first started Sophie's Kitchen back in 2010, as you can imagine, because I explained to you, the word, the two words plant-based was, were not even created. And Impossible Foods and Beyond Me just got started. And so no one knew about them. No one knew about them. And so in the, in the first uh, couple of years of uh, the founding of Sophie's Kitchen, it was really quiet, you know, so quiet that I don't really got a lot of inquiries. Uh, from internet or at the trade show. And then all of a sudden, in the year 2000, starting from the year 2012, I all of a sudden got a lot of inquiries coming in from anywhere, everywhere in the world, from Israel, from Europe, from UK, even all the way from Brazil. I was really curious. So I, I asked a gal from Israel, why are you guys all of a sudden interested in these uh, plant-based products? She then told me that in Israel, this is uh, back in 2013, I remember. Uh, she said that there are a few celebrities in Israel trying to promote plant-based diet through the social media. So social media back then is already thriving, trying to promote the idea, the healthiness of the plant-based diet. And because the technology, like I just mentioned to you, the mobile phone is so convenient, people get the information so easily. And so that's when and why there is a collective action that all of a sudden people, especially customers from these Western market, all of a sudden are interested in the plant-based diet. And then all of a sudden, their opinions, even their behaviors starting to change. So from this story, you can see that if you want to make such a, a dramatic shift in the consumer perception or acceptance, it's almost like a paradigm shift. You need a lot of things to happen concurrently, and that is no easy feat. So back to that 2012 or 2013 story is that not only we have the technology on hand to spread the information, you also have all the celebrities lined up willing to endorse and promote that concept. And on top of that, what's even better is that you have all the food technology, food science coming to that point that is ready for all these new technology, new alternative protein technology to be developed, to shine, to really ready. On top of that, you also have the industry, the regulatory bodies willing and ready to be listening to all these changes from the marketplace. You can see that is a wonderful and so difficult recipe to recreate. If you want to have another consumer movement like this, and that, my friend, is really no easy task from just what I described to you, you know, but I, I would really like to see that kind of paradigm shift to happen one more time or, or a few more times in something else, especially in Asia. You know, I think you possibly can understand in Asia, you know, plastic bag is still flying around everywhere. I was just in Singapore about two months ago. I remember I went to Cold Storage, I went to Fair Price. They're still giving out the plastic bags for free. And so sustainability is just not really deep rooted in most of the consumer's mind in most part of Asia. So in order for that to happen, 
we need a lot of these tiny elements to, to concurrently to go on. And as you can imagine, that is really not so easy to duplicate. But I'm confident that down the road, uh, if things are happening correctly, we may see again uh, something uh, like the plant-based diet uh, happening uh, in the Western market uh, in between 2013 and up until now to be happening again in different parts of the world with different uh, industry, within different industry or with different kind of uh, a new idea as well. You're absolutely right. It requires collective action and requires uh, leaders. You used the example of celebrities sort of advocating a plant-based diet, but it requires leaders to come up and advocate that change. But I'm convinced it will happen within our lifetime, you know, pretty quickly in this decade. And, you know, I, I suppose you saw that The Economist a couple of months back put the alternate food on its cover page. So it really shows the type of deep-rooted customer change that is happening. One thing I wanted to pick up from what you said already is the regulatory barriers. So what type of standards and, you know, testing processes or testing infrastructure are coming in place? And more particularly, what should be coming in place? Well, if you're strictly talking about testing, there's a lot of testing infrastructure already in place in, uh, throughout the world. So the problem with the regulatory issue is really not with the hardware. It's more with the people, or should I say the combination of the people and the system. Why? Let me give you a few more examples. Is, is the fact that in the US, uh, when we were promoting the plant-based seafood, or the plant-based meat, you got this slight back from the meat industry, from the seafood industry, saying that we cannot use the animal term to describe our product. So that itself is a failure in our people's mind and in our regulatory system. You know, uh, why I said that is because that, think about uh, this other example. Today, uh, we use cloud, cloud computing, cloud storage to describe whatever is happening with IoT that we're doing uh, with our computing or with our internet storage, right? So cloud no longer resemble that true water droplets in the sky. No longer is that. Another interesting uh, thing is uh, horsepower. There's no longer horse in your car, but we still use the horsepower to describe the power of our engine, right? So my point is just that as the technology evolves, our language evolves as well. So we really should move on with the trend, move on with the technology, with, with the human evolution. And a lot of time, these regulatory bureaucracy are still binding ourselves to the original place that where we started from and not allowing us to move forward to progress. And that is, in my opinion, not so smart. Now, another thing with uh, the regulatory issue is definitely the fact with the safety, you know? So you talk about these testing mechanism in place. Well, to quite frankly, to begin with that they, they are in place because we have all these safety concerns. And so that's why not only they design a lot of these labs to test the safety of these uh, new ingredients, they also set up a lot of traps, a lot of uh, restrictions for these new ingredients to be introduced into the market. Now, I really believe 
that uh, we should try to quickly remove these barriers, these hurdles. If we want more innovation to come up, especially in, in the food uh, landscape, because why these, uh, these hurdles are really just stifling the new innovation. Let me uh, give you another example is that uh, with our microalgae protein flower here in Europe, the species that we use in our technology is already European Food Safety Authority approved. But because the regulations stipulate that if you do more processing with the ingredients, you then have to file approval with your processes. So that means that because we do fermentation process, never been done before on microalgae, we do protein isolation process, never been done before on microalgae as well. So we then have to file approval process for these uh, two processes. So think about that. That is really arduous and it kind of hinder uh, the innovation to some extent as well. We have to then spend time hiring expensive lawyers to help us, to guide us through these processes. So I guess the bigger question for the whole world and for a lot of governments around the world is that how can you make these processes more friendly to the new innovation while you are safeguarding the, the food safety and the promise you have to your citizen, to the consumers? I think in this case, Singapore government really set up a beautiful, wonderful role model. They are the first one to approve the cell-based meat consumption in the world. And I applaud a big kudos for that because I think they are doing the right thing. They're doing a wonderful, fast, beautiful thing to this new technology. And that's what a lot of the countries around the world uh, should really look at and, and try to simulate. And, and Singapore government really could be a wonderful example in this, uh, in this case. That is absolutely helpful. And it leads very nicely into my last question, which is that, you know, you've obviously spent a lot of time in Singapore and now you're spending time in Netherlands. And you mentioned that uh, the reason you are doing that is because there's more acceptance of your technology there. How has uh, being in Singapore helped you and uh, what do you look forward to? So Singapore is, as we all know today, has become the the hub, the new hub for a lot of uh, different kind of uh, innovations throughout the world. So should I say it is really the Silicon Valley of Asia? You know, you can't find another place in Asia that has more innovations than we see today in Singapore. So to some extent, I have to credit Singapore for giving me the opportunity to really shine, to really uh, make the whole world know about us. Because you know what, if you ask me to do the same thing at the same time in, in Silicon Valley, I will be flooded. I will be, you know, muted because there are so many other innovations coming out of Silicon Valley, coming out of the U.S. And, and quite frankly, you know, the kind of uh, microalgae protein uh, innovation would not seem so dramatic anymore. Whereas in Singapore, I guess because, you know, we're a small city state, and we only have about less than 6 million population. So the amount of innovations, be it number one in Asia, is still not quite there yet uh, when compared to Silicon Valley in the US. And so that's why I think Singapore provided us a wonderful platform, first and foremost, to make ourselves known to the whole world. And from that point on, we get to have a say to express why we're better 
why we're different than all the other technology out there in the world. And from that point now, we're able to extend our reach to now here in Europe. And from what I can tell you proudly is that in terms of alternative protein, developing alternative protein from microalgae, we're definitely, if we're not number one, we're definitely on the top three or at least uh, top four spots uh, in the world. And that itself can see that why I think this is a really amazing achievement that we cannot do without being in Singapore for the last uh, two, three years. With that, thank you very much. Eugene, is there any last comment that you would like to say? Very welcome, Sandroy. And uh, last few things I would like to say is that uh, I encourage uh, uh, more of your audience try to uh, understand about sustainability issues, try to practice sustainability lifestyle. I believe some of your audience are possibly what I call the influencers, the opinion leaders. It, they are just like the celebrity that I mentioned in my stories about Israel. These influencers, these opinion leaders, you guys really need to speak out. You guys really need to influence your circle of influence, your friends and family around you, your, your followers around you. Try to convince them to make a commitment to a more sustainable lifestyle. Because quite frankly, sustainability is not a slogan. Sustainability really have to be a lifestyle in order to make a paradigm shift to save our planet, to make our future more livable, more nutrient-dense, and more glorious for our future generations to come. So I really encourage your audience to try to do that. And if there's anything I can help, I think you can reach uh, uh, Sanjoy to, to get in touch with me. I'm very glad and very willing to, to share, answer any question with your audience anytime. So thank you all. Looking forward uh, to more communication in the future. And that is so inspiring. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy.